All right, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Um, and as you're turning there, um, we're going through Mark this fall and probably next spring, and we're going we're, we're gonna to move kind of fast. We're going to skip, skip some parts, not that we don't like those parts, but because I want to I wanna get through Mark in, in, a, in a relatively short time. So um, as, we, as we kind of move towards Mark 3, let me just kind of, uh, tell you what's happening. Um, ever since uh, Mark 1, basically, Mark 1, 40, um, all the way up to Mark 3, we've been seeing this conflict happen. And even last week, probably, you could remember, hey, there was a lot of conflict happening between Jesus and the religious leaders of Israel. Jesus, of course, is the, the promised Messiah whom all Israel was waiting for with excitement. And he comes, he announces the message, the kingdom of God is here, it is coming, it is near, it is close. Um, and then his, 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 his command to the people that are listening to him is, repent. If you want to be in the kingdom of God, if you want to be in the kingdom of heaven, it requires repentance. Because everyone is sinful and unclean. Everyone has sinned against God. They must repent. They must turn from their sins and turn to Jesus. That is the message that Jesus has been um, proclaiming. And he's been proclaiming other things too. But we see this conflict starting. For example, there's, there's probably these rumors going around that Jesus is touching um, uh, lepers. And that makes you ceremonially unclean, as we saw last week in 145. In chapter 2, verse 10, uh, Jesus is claiming authority to forgive sins. And that makes him unpopular with the religious leaders of his day. In chapter 2, verse 16, even worse, not only is he forgiving sinners, he's having fun with them. He's hanging out. He's going to their sleepover parties. Ugh. Number uh, chapter two verse eighteen, um, and he isn't following the Pharisees' traditions and rituals. He is not fasting. His disciples are not fasting either, and this really makes the Pharisees quite mad. We've got all these rules, these traditions, and Jesus is ignoring all of them. For example, just so you get a taste, fasting, they would fast twice a week. They would fast twice a week. Every single week, a good Pharisee would fast Monday and Thursday. Guess how many times the law of Moses requires you to fast? Anybody? Anybody have any guesses? Yes? Zero times is incorrect. Yes. Five times is incorrect. Only five times, huh? Really? Okay, yes? All the time is incorrect, because then you'd be dead. Uh, yes? One time is correct. So the Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16, that was the only time you were required to fast, with, uh, with, uh, abstain from food so that you could be sober about your sin and about the reality of your sin and your standing before God because of sin. Um, only one time. Now, now, God said you can fast however often you want to, but you, you have to fast on this day. So the Pharisees, they fast 103 times more than they're supposed to. Pretty good guys, right? They look like pretty upstanding citizens. They, they are serious about holiness. And originally, the Pharisees were very serious. They were called, the, the term Pharisees means separate ones. They were serious about holiness. But Jesus, he's, he's ignoring these traditions, these standards that they've set up. And then in chapter 2, verse 24, he is breaking the Sabbath. Well, they're 
their, their view of breaking the Sabbath. His disciples are walking through a field and they are taking some grain off of a stalk and they are breaking it in their hands. They are working on the Sabbath, one of their traditions. So tempers are simmering. Um, a conflict is brewing. And, and we get this sense that there's this uh, head-to-head encounter that is about to happen. Um, and, and it is. There's a conflict happening between the forces of the kingdom of death and the, the crown prince of the kingdom of life. There is this conflict happening, and today we're going to see that conflict just kind of begin in, in earnest. And just so you know, so I'm not making this up, um, the Bible talks about this all the time. It says in 1 John 3, 8, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So there's this battle going on. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, referring to Jesus, likewise partook of these same things, that through his death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That's saying that, hey, everybody is subject to death. Everybody is in the kingdom of death in this world. And we're going to see a conflict um, tonight between the forces of death and the forces of Jesus, the, the king, the crown prince of life. And maybe today you're like, I don't really feel like I'm in the kingdom of death. And, and that might be because you trust in Jesus, you've embraced Jesus by faith, but you, you might not be a Christian. You are indeed in the kingdom of death. And, and, I'll, and I'll try to talk to you a little bit more about this in, in sober terms, because this is a reality. This is a spiritual reality. Even though you're alive, even though you're breathing, if you are not in Christ, you are spiritually dead, Ephesians 2 tells us. So, let's, as, just uh, to give us a little bit more introduction into chapter 3, um, who are the forces of the kingdom of death? They're not, surprisingly enough, the demons. They are the religious Leaders. They are the religious leaders of Jesus' day. So, this is how we're going to look at our passage. We're going to look at our passage like this. We are going to perform kind of an autopsy on dead religion. So we've got these Pharisees with, with their dead religion, and we're going to perform an autopsy. What, what do we find in their dead religion? And now, this metaphor of death and a dead body isn't found in our text. But I'm kind of putting it on there because I want to emphasize to you the, the seriousness, the seriousness of being spiritually dead, the seriousness of having a dead religion or a dead spirituality like these Pharisees do. Um, I want to emphasize the seriousness of having works without faith. You have a great life, good works, you fast 103 times a year, and you are spiritually dead still. Um, James talks about having um, a faith without works. Maybe some of you are familiar with that in cha- uh, chapter 2, verse uh, 20, uh, 26 and 17. He talks about faith without works being dead. You can believe all these things about God. You can know all these things about God. You can even shudder at these things about God and still have a dead faith, a faith that doesn't have actions, actions working that faith out. But in the same way, we also need to be conscious of the reality that you can have works without faith. You can do all these incredible things for Jesus in your church, in your family, and still be spiritually dead or have works without faith. So just to define our terms really quick, um, dead religion, uh, dead religion, people who do a lot of things, and maybe they impress their pastors, their 
their parents, their, their brothers and sisters. But really, they do a lot of external things for people, but God, before God, it's not very impressive. That is dead religion. It does nothing before God. It gives you no merit, no merit before God. Um, Jesus said about the Pharisees, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones. Yes, you have a great life on the outside, but essentially all this life is is just a really beautiful, really nicely decorated tombstone. That's all it is, because inside it is full of dead people's bones. Uh, Mark 7, actually, Jesus says, he says, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. That's what the Pharisees are doing. That is what this dead religion is. It's holding to traditions, to all these standards. And and originally, maybe the Pharisees were doing it for the right reasons, but it has become, like it so often becomes, it becomes, hey, God loves me. I'm, I'm one of God's people because, because I do this, because I was born in this family, because I go to this church, because I was baptized, you know, all these kinds of things. I am God's person because I do this. That is dead religion, if that is the only reason why you are God's people. So, let's read it. Mark chapter 3, verse 1. Let's look at the, the, the frightening autopsy of dead religion. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. And, they, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to, to, to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they, they were silent. And, and he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And, and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So, a, a quick passage, an autopsy of death. Let's just look at this. Uh, three points. First off, I want you to see the blank stares, the blank stares of dead religion. How many of you have ever had the sobering experience of seeing someone die? Seeing someone die. It is not a pleasant sight. But what happens when they die? The life goes out of them and their eyes are blank. The dead blank Stairs. They're just staring ahead, and there's no life in them. And, and, and before, a few minutes ago, they looked like they were alive. But now they are dead. They are gone. And, and these religious leaders have blank stares. We see this. We see Jesus again enters a synagogue, as was his custom. In Luke, it says that he taught them in this synagogue at this moment. Um, Mark doesn't record any of those details because he wants to get right into the, the action, right into the conflict. He enters a synagogue, and there's a man there with a withered hand. And, and Luke even adds the detail that it was this man's right hand. So it was a really important hand, right? Because what, what, what do you do with your right hand? You do everything with your right hand. You text all those important keys with your right hand, right? 
and, and you fish. I, I don't know what else you do with your right hand. You write with your right hand. Right hands are important. They're significant. So this is a debilitating injury, and it's withered. So it, it kind of means that the blood flow has been lost on it, and it's been withered probably for a very long time. And so there's, this is not the kind of injury you come back from. This is the kind of injury either you cut off your hand for or you just leave it like that. This man is in, in the synagogue. Who knows why he is there? Some people think he was a plant by the religious leaders trying to trap Jesus. I kind of think that's interesting. It is interesting. Notice I'm talking about their blank death stares. Verse 2, uh, they look very alive, right? They watched Jesus to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And, and this word uh, watched doesn't just mean it was like a passing glance, like, oh, he's here. That's great. Let's go back to reading. It's like watching the entire time. Where did he sit? There he is. I'm going to watch him for the entire time. I'm going to see if he breaks the Sabbath again, because then, then we can accuse him of breaking the Sabbath. When he's a Sabbath breaker, then he'll, he'll fall out of favor with the people, and, and we can bring him down like that. They're keeping their eye on him. And notice, it's very interesting to me, they have this plan in place so that they can accuse him. Think about that for a minute. Think about that, what that means. They acknowledge that Jesus has the power and authority to heal a man with a withered hand. Matter of fact, they came into the synagogue that morning and maybe said, hey, look, there's a man with a withered hand. Hey, I know how we can use this to our advantage. Jesus is probably going to come here later. He's going to want to heal him, and he can do it, and we're going to use that opportunity to accuse him. Do you realize what they acknowledge that he has power, supernatural power, extraordinary power, but they're just looking at Jesus with this blank stare. It means nothing. They're not connecting the dots. They're like, we're going to use this for our advantage to trick and to trap Jesus. That is called spiritual death. You see all these things about Jesus. You even believe all these things about Jesus like the demons do and shudder, but it causes no change in your life, in your heart, anything. Blank death stares. And and that's that's that. They're just um, yeah, so just a little detail note. Um, I thought this was interesting. In, in, uh, in the Pharisees' extra rules for their Sabbath keeping, they had all of these extra rules to, to make sure they wouldn't break the Sabbath. Some of them were like, hey, um, don't walk, uh, don't, 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 uh, don't till, don't harvest, don't light a fire. So hopefully it's not in the wintertime. Um, don't ride a beast. Don't go boating. Um, don't strike or kill anybody. I kind of think that's a rule that you should kind of keep any day of the week, but on the Sabbath it's helpful. Um, don't slaughter any beasts or any birds, so you've got to do that all the day before. Um, no catching animals. Um, interestingly enough, don't fast. That's considered work. Um, don't make war. Don't make war on the Sabbath. Matter of fact, some of Israel's enemies um, use this to their advantage at Masada. Um, no saying you're setting on a journey to buy or sell. Don't even say it. Um, don't draw water. Don't carry burdens. So, so here it is. They've got all of these rules, and they're like, hey, if Jesus does any little thing, we're going to catch him. We're going to catch him in the act. And they're planning to do it. But once again, the irony of all of this is that they clearly acknowledge that he has supernatural powers. He is a wonder worker. And, and I'm wondering if you were there, if you were there that day, how would you look at Jesus? 
How would you look at Jesus? Would you say, hey, I freely acknowledge that he's going to do this, but I'm not going to do anything different in my life. Maybe you're saying, oh, I would believe in Jesus. I would, I would follow him. I would repent of my sins and follow him. Well, you, you, you don't know. You don't know. I mean, a matter of fact, in Mark chapter 8, verse 11, we, we see the Pharisees constantly asking for signs again. Hey, show us another sign, then we'll believe you. Show us another sign, then we'll believe you. We have in our heart this, this incredible ability to see things, to see proof of Jesus and not believe in him at all. So there you have it, the, the, the blank stares of, of dead religion. Let's look at our next point, our second point. We have the cold heart of dead religion. The cold heart of dead religion. When you die and your organs start to shut down, your heart gets cold. Your whole entire body gets cold. It's no longer, it's no longer living. It gets all cold, but particularly your heart dies. And we see a dead heart in them. Chapter 3, again, verse 4. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, Jesus has them kind of on on the horns of a dilemma here. Their rules never talk about kill. Uh, They do, actually. They do talk about killing. But they would never have said, Oh, it's good on the, the Sabbath to kill. They would never have said that because then they'd be ignoring the law that they, uh, uh, they, they claim that they follow. But they also can't say it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because Jesus, clearly, they know where he's going. They're smart enough to figure it out. Hey, he's going to say, I'm just doing good here to this man. I'm going to heal this man of his withered hand. Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or do evil? They can't answer him at all because any answer they give him will accuse them. Uh, you, you can do evil on the Sabbath while well, you're forsaking Moses. You can do good on the Sabbath. Well, then let me heal this man. In, in either case, Jesus has them on the horns of a dilemma. And notice, he, when they are silent, he looks around at them with anger. Matter of fact, I, don't, I didn't believe this until I looked it up myself. I read this in a commentary, but this is the only place where it specifically says that Jesus got angry in all of the four Gospels. I mean, it always is talking about him looking like he's angry, like when he's throwing out the tax collectors and the sinners out of the temple. But this is the only place where it uses this word anger about Jesus. And that's instructive. That's important for you to remember, to remember that Jesus, as the incarnate God, the Son of God in the flesh, also had all the attributes and characteristics of God. God gets angry at sin. And notice particularly what kind of sin God gets angry at most. He, he gets angry at hard, cold hearts that look at him and see what he does and disregard him. That's what he gets angry at. He gets angry at hard, uh, unrepentant hearts. Uh, by the way, uh, earlier in Mark, we skipped this, but earlier in Mark, the, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they talk to him about, or, or some people come up to Jesus at least, and they talk to him in chapter 18 about, hey, why do you not fast? Why do your disciples not fast? Why aren't you following the traditions that we've set up? And and Jesus basically said, hey, I'm going to tell this story. Would you guys, uh, and I'm going to interpret it for you a little bit here. If if the wedding day had come and you were in the bridal party, would you, ladies, would you like fast with the bride that day? Would you be like, man, we're going to be sad and sorrowful and repentant and, 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 and just sober? 
And they're like, of course not. You wouldn't do that on a wedding day. A wedding day is not just one day. It's a seven-day-long feast with joy and gladness. No, no wedding party will be sorrowful or sad when the bridegroom is there at all. Not, not at all. And, and so basically Jesus is saying, and here we see this, a cold heart of dead religion. Basically, you know you have empty, an empty cold heart when you are fasting, when you should be rejoicing, and rejoicing when you should be fasting. So, so think about this. They, they are fasting, the religious leaders are fasting when they should be rejoicing. The Messiah has come. Look at all of his wonders, all of his miracles. And they are fasting. And they're rejoicing when they should be fasting. When Jesus dies on the cross, they are like, ha ha, let's have a party. We have killed the king's son. Are, are, is that how you are? Do you, do you, are you sad when you should be happy? And are you happy when you should be sad? I mean, I mean, just, just think about yourself. Do you rejoice? Do you get a lot of joy and thrill out of sin? Like, it makes you very happy, very content. Are, are you sorrowful when your sin gets discovered because you have to stop sinning? Are, are, are you sad when Good Friday comes along every single year and you think about the cross? You're not sad because, oh man, this is such a drudgery, this, this service takes forever. You are sad because you know it was my sin that put Jesus on the cross. Are you sad when you think about the cross? Are you sad when you think about the countless millions who are perishing without Jesus? Are you sad? Are you happy when you should be sad and sad when you should be happy? That is empty religion. And notice Jesus is angry at their hardness of heart I, I think it's instructive for you guys to, to realize that um, unbelief is not just merely an academic thing. Hey, I just need some more arguments for the faith. Uh, unbelief is a heart condition. You don't believe because you don't want to believe. They had a hardness of heart that was stubborn, resisting Christ, regardless of what miracles he did, regardless of what he did. Even when he rises from the bed, they still refuse to believe on him. It's not an academic thing. It's a spiritual thing. You sin because you want to keep sinning. You want to keep rejecting Christ. So there we have the cold heart of dead religion. Let's look at a final, a final point here. We have the insidious desires of dead religion. I'll spell that for you. I-N-S-I-D-I-O-U-S. Insidious desires. Uh, insidious is a word that refers to um, a disease or something that's moving slowly and secretly and stealthily. And by the time you discover it, like cancer or something like that, it has its grip on you, on your body, and it's, it's harmful, it's insidious, it, it secretly comes in and it kind of betrays you. You think you're doing well, you think you're doing things for the right reasons, you, you think you're really well off, but really you have these insidious desires that, that creep up behind and use what you meant for good for evil. Um, uh, for, for example, let's see, um, uh, just, just, just because, just because you can't see a, just because you can't see a, a physical condition doesn't mean it's not there. Some of you might have, I, I pray it's not true. Some of you might have a physical condition that you don't even know about yet that may take your life in a few short years. You don't know. Diseases tend to be insidious. 
and, and, and what this goes to show us, we kind of pull away from our, our, our dead religion a little bit, but I think it's instructive for us to just to see, just because you are spiritually dead does not mean you're not spiritually active. Yes, Ephesians 2 says we are dead in trespasses and sin, but we still are, are alive. We still think we are very much alive. We still think we are maybe potentially doing many good things, but they could be motivated by a, a heart of sin, a dead, a dead heart of sin. Notice at the very end here, verse 6, the Pharisees went out. Remember, remember they were trying to trap Jesus and get him to break the Sabbath. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Um, Luke six eleven adds that they were filled with madness. They were filled with anger and madness. And there is this amazing irony here, and catch it, it is the Sabbath day. They were trying to trick Jesus into doing a sin on the Sabbath, Right? But notice, notice what they are doing. They are going out, filled with rage, filled with anger, and they are plotting how to destroy a man. They are plotting how to condemn a man for doing something good, healing a hand, healing someone. They are plotting how to destroy him on the Sabbath, on the very day. And so you you get from this, the issue with the Pharisees, and the issue with sin is never really what you think it is. It's insidious. It's, it's not about the Sabbath. It's not even about their traditions. The issue that the Pharisees had and the issue maybe that you have with Jesus is, hey, I don't want him in authority over me. I don't want him to have authority. I don't want him to be right I want to be my own boss. Maybe you have this experience in, in a smaller way, like when your parent or when you, maybe your sibling um, finds something you did that was wrong and corrects you on it. What do you do? You, you turn to them with a big smile. Thank you so much for correcting me in that. I appreciate that. I repent. I'm turning and I'm changing. No, you, you stubbornly go quiet. You're like, I think the silent treatment is coming. You, you are angry. You may even know that they are right but you still do not want to admit they're right because you, you, don't want, you don't want somebody else to be right and you to be wrong. It's embarrassing. It's humbling. It's humiliating. It, it's frustrating. What the Pharisees had here is similar to that. They, they don't want Jesus to be right. They do not want Jesus to be right because that means they have a much bigger problem than they thought they did and they don't want to admit that. So, so, for example, why, why are they angry? Yes, they're angry because Jesus is ignoring their rules. Yes, they are angry because they don't like how he's embarrassing them. Jesus is always beating them in these arguments where they can't pick between two choices and then they get embarrassed. They don't like how Jesus is extending the kingdom of God to anyone who repents. They say, hey, I have worked my entire life to be in this kingdom, to be expecting this Messiah who was supposed to come and embrace me and pat me on the back and say, good job. They don't like how Jesus is just going up to this tax collector, Levi, and saying, follow me, just like he does to the disciples. They are angry at him for that. They also don't like what Jesus is insinuating. He is saying, hey, in chapter 2, verse uh, verse 17, he said, uh, those who are well do not need a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. What is Jesus insinuating there? He came to call the sinners. Only the sinners will be made righteous because only he can forgive sins. So what he's saying is, you are the true sinners. They don't like what he's insinuating. And, and they also don't like what he is demanding. When, when Jesus says, I have the authority to forgive sin." 
Or, for example, at the end of chapter 2, when Jesus says in 28, the Son of Man is Lord, even over the Sabbath, Jesus is saying, I am your Lord and your God. Repent, humble yourself, and follow me. I have authority over you. Think about that. Their, 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 their Sabbath rules, everything for them functioned around this Sabbath day observance. It was the Sabbath that they, they were able to show off how great they were, how holy they were. And Jesus is saying to the extent that you scrupulously follow these Sabbath rules, you should follow me and humble yourself before me because I am the Lord and your God over Sabbath. They don't like that. They don't want to follow Jesus. That is humbling. They would have to call themselves sinners. They would have to get on the same level as tax collectors and leopards and other sinners. They don't want to do that because they've once again worked their entire life for this standing. And now they just have to give it up. So there, there's the autopsy of dead religion. What, uh, just a question. What, what is the opposite of dead religion? Well, it's, it's, it's alive religion, right? It's, it's something that's alive. It's, it's full of life. Um, uh, living faith. Uh, living uh, religion. And, and, and the good news of this message, if you are willing to receive it, is this. Yes, all people are born into the kingdom of death. All people have blank stares when it comes to Jesus. Yes, all people have this hard heart towards someone else being Lord of their life. Um, yes, all people have this disease and sickness that is not a disease and sickness. It's called sin. It's insidious. It's wrapping its tentacles around your heart, and it's, it's impacting and influencing everything you do. Yes, everyone is born into the kingdom of death. But by the grace of God, you don't have to be in that kingdom anymore. You, you don't have to be sinning like your father, the devil, anymore. Hear, hear the gospel. This is what Jesus offers to everyone, and this is what Jesus even offers to you tonight, that if you humble your heart, you turn from your sin, you turn towards Christ in faith and repentance, you can escape the kingdom of darkness and be transferred, moved into the kingdom of light. That can happen to you tonight if you believe in Jesus. Turn and be saved. I'm just going to read some verses, some powerful verses. And as, as my strength gives out, the word of God does not give out. So I'm going to just read them for you. 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning, is of the devil for the devil has been sinning from the beginning the reason the son of god appeared was to destroy the works of the devil colossians 1 13 he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption the forgiveness of sins and, and in his victory, in his all-encompassing victory, look at this. His followers become conquerors as well. Chapter 8 of Romans 8.37 says this, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. How is this possible? How can I be transferred from the domain and kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of life? Colossians 2 15 tells you, beginning in verse 13, and you were dead in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh. 
Um, but you being dead, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. You who are dead in your trespasses of sins in which you walk by nature, children of wrath, you can be transferred into his kingdom. You can receive redemption. How do you know that this is happening? Uh, the Apostle Paul talks about how you know this is happening in 2 Corinthians 2. Turn there. It's a very interesting passage to me. Last, last passage and we're done for the night. 2 Corinthians 2. 2 Corinthians 2. He is speaking about the powerful ministry that people like him have, people that preach the gospel have. It has this ministry that um, speaks the gospel, and by speaking the gospel, divides everyone it hears into one of two camps. And the question for you this night that you need to challenge your heart with is, what camp am I in? What camp am I in? 2 Corinthians 2. Thanks, uh, for, verse 14, but thanks be to God who in Christ always, always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many uh, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. There's, he's painting a picture of a, a triumphant uh, Roman general returning to Rome with this whole entourage of people behind him. And as he's going through uh, Rome, the city of Rome, there's two groups of people. There are his, his conquering servants and armies walking after him. And then there are prisoners that have been captured that maybe will go to jail. Maybe will go to the Colosseum and be killed later. And as they're walking, priests would carry these little incense things. And there would be these aroma going uh, out to all the people. And it would just permeate every single part of this big parade. And you'd smell it. You'd smell it the entire parade long, and maybe it would be with you all night. You'd just keep smelling this. Now, if you're one person, it reminds you, I'm on the victor's side. I have victory. But if you are the people that have been conquered, it tells you, I am about to die. Or, to put it in Paul's words, among those who are being saved, when you hear the good news of the gospel, what does it tell you in your heart? It speaks life to you. It gives you eagerness. It gives you eagerness to deal with sin. I don't want to be a slave to sin anymore. I want to live as someone who is free. It gives you enthusiasm to sing. It gives you enthusiasm to serve. But to those, among those who are perishing, both words are active, those who are being saved, those who are being sanctified, and those who are actively perishing, death. It's like a big game over sign. When I hear the gospel message, it means death. 
When I see um, Pastor Steve open God's word, it means death to me. When I see Pastor David open God's word, it's just death and boring. This is not why I'm here. I'm here to hang out with my friends. I don't want to hear about this truth of the gospel, what it tells me about me, what it tells me about God. When, when the truth of the gospel is proclaimed, you are separated. And, and when, we, when we hear about dead religion, oh, where does that put you? Are, are you a dead person walking? Are you someone with glazed over eyes, cold hard heart, insidious desires that are overwhelming and controlling? You say they are good, but really they are evil. Or are you someone that's been transferred to the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of, of, of God's beloved Son, and are walking in light as he is in the light? And let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for your good goodness and your grace to us allowing us a chance to hear your word. We pray that we would be sobered by it. I pray now for small groups that you'd give us all attentiveness um, and focus as we talk about these things. I pray that your grace would be on this group, that we would be um, willing to expose ourselves of any sin and corruption that we may have, and we'd repent and turn to you. I pray this in your name. Amen.